So we're looking at uh, tissue and, and organ engineering uh, from a bottom-up approach, looking at 3D printing to structure and figuring out that ultra structure. You know, the way that we're looking at this is similar to, if you think about the amazing engineering that's in the phones in our pockets now, we started from a very crude uh, single transistor, right? It was very large and there was one, it was functional unit of compute. And that has scaled through Moore's law, gotten miniaturized. And now we have billions of transistors inside of our phones. We have a similar type of challenge that Laura was really explaining um, clearly where we have to think about what is the vascular unit cell inside of our functional organs, organs like the lung and the liver and the pancreas and the kidneys, they do have similar types of architectural design patterns where we have a functional vascular unit cell and is replicated and scaled up uh, hundreds of millions of times in our organs. And so we're asking the question of how can we design such unit cells from scratch? And then we have a lot of work to do to miniaturize them and replicate them hundreds of millions of times. So generally this idea is centered in, uh, oh, and sorry, as a disclosure, uh, we have a startup company Volumetric that is commercializing this technology. So we're really focusing on the structure function relationships in living tissue. And in biology, we have this idea of form follows function, where the form of a biological structure is could be anything from a single protein structure all the way to the limb of an organism or the organism itself. It's really an evolutionary consequence of its function. And in tissue engineering, we're really asking the converse question, Will function follow form? If we can make the structure that replicates what we see in the body, how much of that do we need to replicate using a very reductionist perspective? Could we build up structures from scratch that begin to mimic some of these functions? And would that be sufficient to help human patients? So one of the challenges that we think about a lot is how are we gonna get enough cells? And a lot of us are, um, in this regime. So I have here an exponential graph along the bottom, 10 to the zero, so cell number per construct, 10 to the zero single cell biology way over here. A lot of our lab's work is here and we really need to be thinking about the organ scale. We have hundreds of billions of cells in our organs. And so we need at least one to 10 billion cells in organ scaffolds to begin to replicate some of that biochemical function that is an additive uh, sum of all of the cells and all of their efforts inside of a effectively portable volume that fits inside of our body, right? If I make an organ that is 10% as efficient as the liver, it has to be 10 times bigger, and that's not going to fit inside of your torso. So we can grow billions of cells, and a lot of you are growing a lot more cells than we do. Um, this is what a billion cells looks like in a single 50 mil conical. But when we're talking about adherent cells and a lot of the parenchymal cells we're interested in, we are not able to keep these alive for very long. As soon as we trypsinize them, we're starting a clock to cell death. And instead we have to just aliquot the cells down, uh, freeze them down and try to use them when we can. So if you, if you take these cells, what if you just stick them in a gel? So uh, this is really a lot of the early work in the field where um, you do an experiment like this, this is our take on it. So you have a thick slab of gel, thick from a cell's perspective, five millimeters, very thin from a human perspective, but we can load it up with tons of cells, 40 million cells per mil. These are HEK cells that are expressing a destabilized EGFP. 
And if you grow this for a couple of days, you take a cross section through it. This is false color for the destabilized GFP. You see that you get a crust layer of cell survival. It's, it looks like a slice of bread where you have the outer surface. That is where oxygenation is happening when you're making bread. That's where oxygenation is happening in our tissues when we're making these thick slabs. So we showed that if you have just very simple channels inside of these gels, you can get flow through them. And when you have that flow, can, can each individual vessel, here we're looking at 800 micron vessels inside of these tissue slabs, uh, they're able to keep a circumferential volume of cells alive in contrast to tissues that don't have any vessels. But you see, it's not a perfect job here. We have lots of dead zones still in the tissue that we needed to optimize. If we looked at this further, uh, more recently, uh, this is work of Ian Kinslinger in our group who just went on to start his postdoc in Boston. And uh, he has been looking at HEPG2 cells. We can talk about the value of HEPG2 cells in tissue screening. The point is that they're, they're mammalian cells that are highly metabolically active. We were able to quantify that these vessels, they in, in highly proliferative cells, we're getting escalating gradients of survival. You can see here with the MTT staining and escalating proliferation gradients that you're seeing here that tend to follow each other. And we think the cells are, these are in non-degradable gels in this case, where we think the cells are proliferating closer to the vessel and dying further away. So the reason this happens is the same reason and, and same thought process that goes into the design of cities actually. So just as a vibrant city needs roads, a vital organ has to have vasculature. So with a city, we have certain city blocks where the residents live. So here's a, a great picture of Paris. And uh, in our tissues, we have the areas where our cells are residing, they're in place, they're in trapped inside the solid, and we have to have these highways. If you imagine a city that didn't have roads, how would you get your furniture home? How would you get groceries home? How would you take out the trash? This is exactly the same challenge that our cells have to do at a micron scale. And if we don't provide the highways for that nutrient and waste transport, it's not gonna be a very efficient tissue and the cells are going to die very rapidly. We have to think about this, the total organ scale. Um, in our liver, it's the same story, very large organ over half of the volume of the liver is liquid. The concept of solid organs is actually a misnomer, right? If our, or, our large volumetric organs are more than half uh, liquid with perfusion volumes, that includes the blood vessels, includes the lymphatics, and includes things like the bile duct tree in the liver, the urinary tree in the kidneys. So we used, uh, in this case, we're using projection stereolithography. So it's adapting techniques from the 3D printing industry that have been around for uh, almost 40 years now, a lot of these ideas, and adapting them into biology and biomaterials that we can structure the material better and then interrogate in a, in a very reproducible way how functional is that architecture. So we're using layer-by-layer layer projection where a light-sensitive polyethylene glycol acrylate gel is being polymerized. We can also do this with gelatin with acrylate in degradable settings. Every individual layer is a different image getting projected and uh, effectively building up the object. So what we like about using 3D printed hydrogels, you can make really intricate blood vessel networks. You can see here, uh, here we're perfusing in two different materials. We have colloidal black ink, India ink going in that gets trapped and stays inside of the vessels. We're also perfusing in red food coloring, a small hydrophilic dye that diffuses out. And you can see it looks like this Voronoi architecture 
resembles what you might see in, in a city block diagram. This would be a hard city to drive through. Uh, maybe this feels more like, uh, I remember my times in Boston. And so you have these individual city blocks, we're gonna have the cell residents live, and we need to see how fast can we deliver nutrients and oxygen to the cells that we trap there. We needed to go more complicated. So we began to build up different architectural concepts and explore these new design freedoms in tissues based on this technique. So here's a torus knot. It actually is uh, reminiscent to me of the glomerulus in the kidney. Here we can do an inlet outlet, which is the torus and the torus knot is the red topology that sits on the surface of the torus. You can see what the individual uh, photo mass would look like to build that object up and how that would then build up to make the object. So the photo mass in the upper left up here and we're building up the object one layer at a time. We have now two independent vessel networks with branches inside of the same tissue architecture, so this hydrogel material. This is what it would look like if we could get the flow to work. And in fact, we were able to get the flow to work inside of the vessel. Now this is, again, not at the scale we would like to do to make organs. These vessels in this case are around 500 microns in diameter. We'll talk about getting to smaller diameter vessels, but this was exciting to us because it represented the ability to do multivascular architecture two or more independent vessel networks inside of one gel. We can put different materials in, use one for in, one for out, lots of different ways to think about this. Now, this was exciting to us, but this is not what our organs look like. Our organs look like this, right? And uh, you may notice or recognize the artist on the left here. This is from Leonardo da Vinci over 500 years ago, where he was really noticing this multi-branching architecture. So we have the heart here, we have the blood vessels from the heart going down into the lung, but you can also see an other, another interpenetrating multi-scale architecture, the ribs of cartilage of the trachea going down also. And as far as Leonardo da Vinci could see down into the bottom of the lung and the distal components, he continued to see the branching go all the way down. We still have a limited ability to understand the total architecture of the lung. You can do a CAT scan of the whole um, vasculature of the lung. You can see just the vasculature here, not the airways. And you can see the capillaries because the CAT scan doesn't have that kind of resolution. Uh, this upper right image, this is actually a beautiful photo from Laura Nicholson's lab. Thank you, Laura. Um, this is resin casting um, of the airway of the lung. And you can see the beautiful, amazing architecture of the alveolar air sacs all the way at the bottom here. But then this resin casting technique, you know, you can't see the vasculature too because we're really looking at the resin uh, inner, uh, uh, getting into the airway to, to cast it. Um, and then other groups, so this is work from Zhichao Chen's group where he's looking at the developmental biology of the lung from scratch and looking at that architectural development. So we were taking inspiration here thinking, you know, we can't make a lung yet. Uh, so we're trying to think about what is that vascular unit cell? Could we design it on the computer? Could we build it up? And uh, we were able to do that inside of the gel. So you can see here, we're inflating the air sac we're getting deoxygenated red blood cells coming in and then sheathing vascular architecture. They're picking up oxygen coming out. And we were able to uh, further show some design paradigms we think could be useful where you would first computationally grow the airway. This in collaboration with Nervous System, a design firm uh, in New York, and then populate the tips of these branches with these alveolar air sacs. And uh, we can't yet scale this up, you know, uh, right? We're, so we're trying to build this up further. But um, this was our uh, version of, we were able to show that some of that architectural complexity would impinge on the vessels in different ways uh, based on the local curvature of the airway. 
So this is strictly topology and there's not any cells in the bulk of the matrix. Those are human red blood cells we're perfusing through, but what about cellularizing these tissues? So we have been looking at uh, more recently endothelializing these vessel architectures. You can see here, uh, I just published recently where we're injecting endothelial cells in. We actually did a detailed protocol of how this works. We're injecting the cells in, we're rotating the tissue around. How do you rotate a tissue around if it's in a multi-well plate? Well, you're gonna need actually these 3D printed chambers that we also built and open sourced. You can download um, off of the Nature Protocols website or off of our uh, GitHub repository. And we have a whole set of protocols for how to uh, both 3D print the gel, 3D print the chambers, uh, all the parts to do this. And uh, even the machine that you can build, download 3D print the parts and it will auto rotate your gels for you. So uh, this has been really exciting for us and, and very useful for all of our individual seeding steps. So more recently, we've been looking at going higher resolution. We've now been able to get, you know, initially we had the 300 micron vessels in the alveolar air, air sac. Now we're getting down to sub 100 micron, in some cases around 50 micron vessel diameter. We're able to also um, get good perfusion through there, as you can see here. Uh, here, these can get perfused strictly by capillary actions, but obviously if we're going to grow human cells. We want to do this in a more pumping perfusion way. Um, so we've been looking into that as well. Uh, you can see these gels maintain their elasticity. We're looking at what is the optimal balance between vascular architecture and interstitial zones. If you have too much vasculature, it's going to look like something like rosacea or something where way too many vessels, not enough room for tissue function. Um, we've also been able to now endothelialize vessels. So sorry, before I get to that, we, uh, given some of the talks about cancer, um, we're also looking at, you know, just because you have a vascular channel doesn't mean you have to do flow perfusion through there. You might think about structuring multivascular architecture. One of the vessel networks, you could inject a solid plug of cells. Wouldn't they all die? Well, they wouldn't all die if you have a second vascular network that is perfusing the nutrients through them. So here are some lung adenocarcinoma cells, uh, double labeled for the cytoplasm and the nuclei, and just showing that the cells are, are doing okay there. Um, so here now we're injecting QVEX. These are um, expressing constitutive GFP into these 50 micron vessel networks. Um, some of these images we're very happy with. Some of this process is very difficult. And in this paper, we actually highlighted some of the pitfalls and dangers and complexities of endothelialization and perfusion. There's lots of ways to do this wrong. So uh, we found in the gels, if you don't do perfusion, the cells tend to die. They need to have those nutrients coming in. Um, if you overseed, you'll get these endothelial nodules that seem to be um, some kind of uh, bad physiology, maybe pathophysiology of the endos. That could be something interesting to study. We're trying to get really better endothelium. Um, if you don't do the rotation correctly, uh, other ways to get non-uniform seeding and uh, bubbles are always going to be something you're, you're scared of when you're doing flow perfusion studies. So definitely wanna have bubble traps, et cetera. Once you solve all those problems though, we've been able to get uh, really, this is unpublished work, but we were able to get uh, very exciting to us vascular networks that are patterned that uh, have vessel components that are under 50 micron in diameter, we're able to get flow through these. So here we can see five micron fluorescent beads flowing through what looks like effectively a percolation network that's endothelialized. We even have some of the endothelial cells beginning to sprout angiogenic sprouts into the vessel. So we're still studying this in detail, but these are degradable gels. They're mostly based on gelatin methacrylate and it's sufficiently simple enough for the cells to grow and migrate through. They secrete their MMPs and go through. It's 
it's a lot simpler than some of the uh, maybe random estrobon hydrolysis techniques that, that uh, our field really came from. And um, we're really looking at that endothelial physiology now. So we, we really needed new technologies to get the architecture. Now we have the architecture looking back at biology. What can we get for the endothelial cells? How stable are we? Uh, are they, are we getting flow alignment? It seems it's possible. Uh, we're getting some evidence of that. We're looking at the VEC adherence. We're getting good cell-cell junctions and studying the permeability quantitatively of these vessels. We can do uh, confocal microscopy and show what is the nature of some of these nascent androgenic sprouts. Uh, how many cells are there? Are they connected? Where their nuclei? Look at the phylloidin. Um, very exciting to us. Now, what about this city block region that we want to put cells in? Well, this is uh, even more recent. We have now, this work from uh, Dan Caesar, who also uh, just defended his PhD and also moved to Boston to do his uh, postdoc. Uh, or sorry, he's working in industry now, but over in Boston. Um, so now we have individual micro wells that are at very specific distances from our vascular endothelial networks. You can see here, we're looking at lung adenocarcinoma cells, just a very good positive control for us. of just, are the cells alive or not? Are they able to capture nutrients? Um, and so you can see from day zero to day three, the cells and their aggregates begin to grow. Uh, further, what we have, uh, we're actually now seeing the cancer cells beginning to migrate out of their micro wells, perhaps towards the vasculature. And we're seeing how close can we make this distance? Um, I don't think we can get down to sub one micron distance yet. Um, it's something that we may not be able to do by 3D printing anytime soon, but uh, it may be moot if this is reproducible enough that we can study things like the androgenic switch or things like delivering specific um, uh, factors to stem cell aggregates in, in these different areas. So this is brand new work we're very excited about, uh, very excited for potential collaborations uh, with any of you. So I'd be glad to follow up. Um, just overall in general, you know, what we're trying to do is think about what is the total organ structure we definitely can't make that yet, but we're very excited for a pathway of a Moore's law-like scaling that, our, that we need to do that our field is, is in, in process of doing to get hundreds of millions of these vascular unit cells inside of a packed volume in a way that they're all connected and plumbed just like it is inside the organs. Um, and we can do that by looking at organ structure, breaking it down on the anatomy side, but there's a lot of mappings of organ structure uh, in the literature from decades ago and some of the newer ideas are we could build a de novo vascular network that uses characteristics of the in vivo environment and the in vivo network topology, regrow a synthetic topology would be cleaner to grow and modulate in terms of structure, put that into the gel and then study function. So with that, I'd like to thank uh, the members of the lab. So um, Greg Gregorian led up a lot of the early work in the, the science paper. Uh, Ian Kinslinger and others on the endothelialization of the gels and looking at these uh, growth and proliferation gradients. And uh, Maddie and Kristen doing a lot of the um, recent work on endothelialization of the smaller vessels together with uh, Dan Caesar. Um, so thanks.